So as many of you know, uh, when I've been up here, we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians, and so uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles there. I hope you brought your Bibles and didn't rely on the screen, because there's no screen. All right, so go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, we'll start continuing to make our way through there. Um, we started back in January, and... We're going to finish chapter 3 today, so I hope you've been liking it, because that means that we'll be here till sometime in 2019, so uh, with the, we don't know, just be loud, well I've never been accused of being quiet, bedtime stories are interesting at our house, Karen has to keep reminding me to not preach, I guess. So, all right, so let's just open up uh, 2 Corinthians 3, and we're going to start in verse 7. We're going to read through to the end of the chapter, uh, but our focus this morning is just on the last few verses. But just to get a bit of the context, we'll read 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 7 on through to 18, okay? So I'll pray, and then we'll... We'll jump in. So, Father, we're so thankful for your presence here with us by your Spirit. We're so thankful for your Word that we can come to it now. And we just trust that your Spirit's going to use your Word to work in us, to change us. Uh, we want to have a greater faith in you. We want to have a greater understanding of you. Uh, but more than that, we want to be changed. We want to be encouraged in our walk with you. And we want to be continually conformed into the image of your Son. And so we just pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, that you would open your word this morning to us, that we could see the wonderful things contained in it. And so we just ask that your uh, spirit would help us this morning because we're desperately need of your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Second Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 7, Paul says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All right, there we go. All right, that first chunk especially is a bit difficult. There's a lot of glory, glory, 
and glory and, and a comparison of some things going on in Exodus, we kind of understand, but it was a bit, a bit hard, but we'll just we'll break it down. But our, our main point is to hit those last three verses, 16, 17, and 18. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is about change. So if you write notes, you can just write change at the top. That's our simple title for this morning. And so we live in a world of constant change. Sometimes we say constant change is here to stay, right? And every day we wake up with something new. Our surroundings and our circumstances rarely look the same from one day to the next. It's always changing around us. And because we as a church uh, exist in this world of change, we too endure constant change. So as a church, every day, every week, every month, every year, we're faced with change. And obviously this morning we have a very good example of that as we meet in yet another venue. We have change around us. Change is to be expected. And as people, we can respond to change in different ways. Some people enjoy change. Some people get excited about change. They pursue change. Other, for other people, change is quite stressful. They find it quite difficult. It sounds like a lot of new work. Uh, it sounds like, you know, it, it can kind of rock our sense of being under control. Some people just have a harder time with change than others. Being a Baptist pastor's son, I moved like 13 times, I think, before I was 20. And so I got very used to my surroundings changing. It was pretty well changing every three or four years there at times. So change can be expected and we can, we can approach it in various ways. Some people enjoy it. Some people get quite stressed out about it. But no matter how we handle circumstances and situations changing around us, all of us desire change for ourselves. We all want to see ourselves change. We all want to see ourselves get better. We all see things in ourselves that we're not happy about or we think that are obstructions to our happiness and we want to see those things change. Right now on Amazon.ca, there are 387,969 books in the self-help section. 387,969 books when you click on self-help at Amazon.ca. And they all have the idea of who you as the reader need to change into and give you the process of how to make that change, right? You need to change and be a more motivated person. You need to change and be a more relaxed person. You need to change and be a wealthier person. You need to change and declutter and live a more simple life. You need to uh, do more. You need to do less. You need to, here's how to get people to like you. Here's how to not care what people think about you, right? <laughs> it's always change. And on and on it goes and the world eats it up. And the reason that there's 387,000 books is that there's a whole bunch of people who just want to read it and learn how to change. And if you throw in some words like secret or hidden in the title, or if you make some connection to an Eastern religion, you're guaranteed to bump your sales up a few more thousand books. And so we're all desperately searching for change. We want to change. And so... 
we want to change as a people. And maybe lately you found yourself often maybe losing patience with your kids and you want change. Maybe you've been trying to be positive about another venue change, but you just feel that bitterness and frustration creeping in and you want change. Maybe you just feel overwhelmed with anxiety and worry and you want change. Maybe you've set up all the accountability programs you can on your computer, but you just keep going back to those websites and you want change. Maybe this morning you've got despair, you don't have purpose, you feel like joy just sleep, slips through your fingers every time you grasp at it and you want change. And although there are a hundred different outworkings and practical steps based on different applications, this morning I want to drill down to what Paul shows us is the very basis of all change in our lives. No matter what situation you're in, Paul is going to give us the basis of real change, change that brings the fulfillment that our hearts are longing for. All right, so we'll look at that. First, we'll just set some context so we understand where Paul is coming from. So back in verse 7, <clears throat> Paul begins this comparison of old and new covenants. And he does so by pointing us back to Exodus 34 and giving a little bit of a commentary on that, on that chapter. And in Exodus 34 is when Moses, Moses has, has come down with the, with the first commandments of God. He sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. He breaks them over his knee and chucks them away. And he goes back up the mountain and he gets another set. And it says when he comes down that time, uh, when the people see him after he's been with God, his face is glowing, okay? Being next to the glory of God has given Moses like a glowing suntan, okay? Kind of like the people you see that have been at the, the, the tanning salons way too much, and they just kind of have a glow about them, right? That's what Moses is in Exodus 34. And the glow is so much, it says that when he comes, he has to put a veil over his face. And so he goes, he talks to God, and then the glory of God is like reflected in his face and he comes to the people, he tells them uh, what God says and then he puts a veil over his face. And so when you read Exodus or when you're going through the Bible project or what have you and you read chapter 34, you just read that and you go, oh, cool, Moses had a tan and he put his veil on his face and you kind of move on and we don't really see much in it. But Paul sees a lot in that and he takes second corinthians chapter 3 to kind of explain what he sees in that and he uses it as a way to compare what the bible calls the old and the new covenants and the old covenant is what we would sometimes call the law it's what moses received on the mountain from god and the new covenant is what we would sometimes call the gospel it was the fulfillment of the law it was god sending his son jesus christ to die and rise again for us. And when Jesus sat down at the Last Supper and he gave them the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Basically what Ben prayed earlier is the new covenant, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us for our salvation. And so Paul takes those first few verses to make that comparison. And we don't have time to really unpack old 
and New Covenant this morning, but if you want to understand a bit more of what the New Covenant is, you can read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, or Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28. Those are really good, just a couple verses that really give a great picture of what the New Covenant is. So Paul's drawing up these comparisons to show us the New Covenant has a far greater glory than the Old Covenant covenant. And first off, he says in verse 7 that it has a greater glory. The old covenant was a glorious thing. It was commandments from God, written by God, for the people of God, and so it had a glory about it. But it was nothing compared to what was to come. He talks of the old covenant being a ministry of condemnation, and the new covenant being a ministry of the Spirit and a ministry of righteousness. And he talks of the Old Covenant being temporary. It had a fading glory. It has come and it is gone, but the New Covenant is permanent. There's not going to be a newer covenant. For all of eternity, we'll be singing about the sacrificial work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. It's the New Covenant that carries on forever. And so there's a permanence to the New Covenant. John Calvin said, Just as the moon and the stars, though they are themselves bright and spread their light over all the earth, yet vanish before the greater brightness of the sun, so the law, however glorious in itself, has no glory in the face of the gospel's grandeur. Okay, so there is a light, there is a glory with the the stars and the moon, but when the sun comes up, where are they? They've paled in comparison to the glory of the light of the sun. And so that's a bit of a picture of the old covenant and then the coming of the new covenant okay so we went through that section rather quickly from 7 to 11 but that hopefully gives you a bit of understanding of what Paul was saying there and then in verse 12 Paul says that Moses had the message of the law and it was glorious but he veiled his face and now Paul has the message of the gospel It is more glorious. He is bold in presenting it. But even as he presents it, he says some people, as it were, still have their hearts and their minds veiled to it. They cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ. And if you look down in chapter 4, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, he says, he explains this a bit more. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so we've probably witnessed this ourselves at times. You've carefully, lovingly, thoroughly explained the gospel with someone. You've talked to them about Jesus, and they just don't see it they just don't see it it's like a veil is over their face they can't see the glory of jesus in what you're saying they can't see the glory of christ in the gospel because to bring that type of change in a person's heart that type of vision so they can see it takes more than our just our good deeds it takes more than our persuasive words to see that heart change that's needed in somebody so that they can see the glory of Christ, it needs God's work. It needs God to act. 
And so that brings us to verse 16, where Paul begins this beautiful description of how a person changes. And as I said at the start, he's going to lay down this foundation for all of heart change that we desire. So I've gone through those first eight or nine verses rather quickly, but hopefully we get an idea of what Paul's talking about. And so I just want to take the last bit here to go through these last three verses and to just point out three things about change, and then we'll come in for a landing. So the first thing as we walk with God in this new covenant age, Paul wants us to see who the agent of change is. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Paul says that it's the Spirit who removes the veil from us. And so we have a veil over the eyes of our heart, so to speak. The Spirit comes, whoosh, takes the veil away, and we can see, right? And so Paul draws this line between Spirit-enabled sight and freedom. He's saying when you have sight, then you have freedom. The Spirit removes the veil, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So if you were stumbling around in the dark, the greatest freedom I could give you is a flashlight, right? Picture us in this building, and it all just goes dark. It's pitch black. You're stumbling around, and in a sense, you're a prisoner to the darkness around you, right? You could stumble down those stairs and hurt yourself. You could walk into that glass. You might walk into that glass without it being dark in here. But you're a bit of a prisoner to the darkness around you, and you're in danger, right? And then I come, I hand you a flashlight, you turn it on, freedom, right? Do you see that? And so the Spirit gives us sight, and that sight, that ability to see, is freedom. The Spirit comes removes the veil, and we have freedom. The veil blinds us to the glory of Christ, but when we can see, we are free. And so that freedom that we have is the freedom to see the glory of God. And when we see God as glorious, then God's commands, God's will for our life, uh, we see them not as death, but as life. We're set free to see the glory of God, and so we're set free to see His commands as life for us instead of death. We have a freedom to enjoy God. And so often when we talk about freedom or when the world talks about freedom, it's all about an absence of restrictions. When we're free to do what we want, we are free to choose what we want. We're just free to live our own life and to go our own way. And we see all around us in the world, it's full of people doing what they want and claiming to be free. They see freedom as just the absence of all restrictions and just let me do as I please. You see it in every Lotto 649 commercial where the guy, you know, rip your tie off and jump on your 50-foot yacht, and then you are 
free. Free to do whatever you'd like. But at its core, this understanding of freedom turns out to be a dangerous slavery whose end is death. And Tim Keller put it this way. He gives this great picture of a fish. So he says, a fish has two things that make it perfect in water. Gills that absorb oxygen from the water, not the air, and fins that move through water, but not on land. The fish must honor its design. It is designed for water, not for land. That is a restriction. And if it's in the wrong environment, it dies. If it does not honor its design, it is free to do all it was designed to do. Sorry. If it does honor its design, it is free to do all it was designed to do. Freedom, then, is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but it is finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. Real freedom isn't doing what we most want to do. Real freedom is doing what we were designed to do. That is why Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a great picture, isn't it? Real freedom isn't doing what we want to do. Real freedom is doing what we were designed to do. And so, yeah, the fish has a restriction placed on him to stay in the pond, but it's only by staying in the pond and doing what he was designed to do that he can enjoy freedom. He might have a wide open field, but that field is death for the fish because he wasn't designed to be there. Does that make sense? I think it's a very helpful picture for us. So the Spirit frees us by showing us what we were designed to do, which is to glorify and enjoy God. The Spirit frees us by showing us what we were designed to do, which is to glorify and enjoy God. And so the agent of our change in our lives, in our heart, is first and foremost the Spirit. It's Him that removes the veil and enables us to see the glory of Christ. And now look at verse 18. Verse 18, Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So Paul says, Now that you are free to see, see Christ. Now that you are free to see, see Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Behold the glory of the Lord. And in your seeing, he says that you will be transformed. So don't just give him a casual glance. We need to behold the glory of Jesus. We need to gaze upon him. We need to adore him. And Paul says that as you behold Jesus you will become like Jesus. Beholding leads to becoming. Growing comes by gazing. Whatever other cool sentence you want to put together, that's what is happening here. As we behold the glory of Jesus, as we soak in, as we are preoccupied with Jesus, we are being transformed. And so this is why we need to be, as a church, in the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. Beholding the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. Not so that we can just check off a box for the day. Not so that we can just post a verse, verse of the day on Facebook. Not so that we can just do our duty, but so that we can behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And in our beholding, we can be transformed. And notice Paul says, we are being transformed. We are being transformed. We aren't the ones changing ourselves. We are being changed. (coughs) And so we get a better picture of what the Spirit is doing as the agent of change. He's not just lifting up the veil, right? He's not just lifting up the veil and say, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. He's lifting up the veil, he's pointing us to Jesus, and he's working change in our lives. We are being transformed. And so this is why our prayer needs to be for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we come to worship, we need to be saying, God, I need your spirit. As I come to you and worship, I need to behold the glory of Jesus so that I can be transformed. When you come to your word, to the word, if you just have a coffee and a pen and a notebook, it's incomplete. You need the Spirit to come so that you can have the sight to behold the glory of Jesus in His Word and be transformed. We are so in need of the Spirit's work in our lives. And so if you look at your life and you want to see change happen you want to see your worry your rage your lust your grumbling your impatience you want to see those things change you want to see a growth of holiness in your life paul is showing us the very heart of all god honoring lasting change is this you will look more like jesus the more you look at jesus you will look more like jesus the more time you spend looking at jesus Not when you spend more time looking at yourself. Not when you spend more time looking at a screen. Not when you spend more time looking at others. But only comes by the more time you spend looking to Jesus. When I was a kid, the main sport I played was was basketball. And my mom used the church's overhead projector to... Uh, draw a Chicago Bulls logo on a piece of plywood and attached it to a pole and then I would spend hours uh, out there playing basketball and when I was in high school we had a VHS cassette of the 1994 NBA All-Star Weekend and I watched that over and over and over again. I rewound, it was back, I can explain rewinding later but (laughs) Um, You actually had to rewind the tape. It actually took time to go back and start again. Anyway, but I would watch that over and over and over and over again. I beheld those NBA players. I watched how they dribbled. I watched how they shot. I watched how they did a crossover. I beheld the glory of the NBA players and of specifically the 1994 NBA All-Star Weekend. And as I watched it, and I loved them, and I wanted to be like them, I had the Be Like Mike poster on my wall, and as I watched them, I slowly, over time, got better, because we become like what we admire. The more time we spend looking at something, that's what shapes us and molds us. Before you get 
you know, have a too elevated view of where I was at. I was a <laughs> awkward six foot tall white guy that weighed about a buck fifty. And so there were no college recruitments or anything, but I did get better as I beheld those NBA players. You imitate what you adore. You become what you behold. And so the single greatest need in your life is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the single greatest need in your life is to behold the glory of of Jesus. We spend so much time beholding so many other things and so little time beholding Jesus. We need to be in awe of Jesus. Last night, if you went to the fireworks, you beheld the fireworks. Your gaze was transfixed on them. Little, a little flashlight over here didn't draw your attention away from them. It was like jaw-dropping awe of the fireworks. And yet we come to the glory of the gospel in that we were dead in our sin and Jesus came and rescued us. He picked us up out of the miry bog and set our feet on the rock. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, not by some silver or gold, but by laying down his life by the imperishable blood of the spotless lamb. And you've been not just had your sins removed, but you've been adopted into a family for all of eternity to be in all of eternity with God in whose presence is the fullness of joy and at whose right hand is pleasures forevermore. And we come and it doesn't captivate us the same way that the fireworks did last night. We spend so much time beholding so little things when we have clear sight at the glory of Jesus Christ. Lastly, Paul shows us the goal of all change, the goal of our change. It isn't just to get a few weaknesses out of our life or to conquer a few bad habits. The goal of change for a Christian is nothing short of Christ-likeness. Look at how he finishes verse 18. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So God's desire for us is to be transformed into the image of His Son. God's greatest work in your life isn't on your job. It's not on your body or your health. It's on your heart to see your heart transformed and conformed into the image of His Son. It's amazing that the goal the Bible presents to you is so far above any self-help book that you'd find up at chapters. They're all like, oh, you've got to declutter your life and all that. And, and the Bible's like, no, be like Jesus, right? It's an infinitely greater goal, but the Bible gives you the power through the Spirit to see that happen. We become like Jesus by the Spirit-enabled and empowered beholding of Jesus. And so if you want to be more forgiving, you need to behold Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. If you want to be more bold, you need to see Jesus going into the temple and flipping, it, flipping the tables and going all Indiana Jones with his whip right there in the temple, right? If you want to be more tender, you need to see Jesus scooping up the little children, putting them on his knee and showing them his love. If you want to be more perseverant in the midst of suffering, you need to behold Jesus who is face to face with his suffering in the garden and said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And then for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for you and for me. How amazing it is to think that you and I are being transformed into the image of Jesus. And notice Paul says it's from one degree of glory to another. It's not instantaneous. It's a process. And so much, so many times we emphasize our position. So if, if like here's zero and a hundred is the perfect image of Jesus and we get so caught up in, you know, am I an 87? Am I a 33? Where do I fit on this scale of becoming like Jesus, but what's important is that there's progress. Which way is the trajectory going? What's important is that we are becoming like Jesus, and it's a process from one degree of glory to another. Sometimes it might be a big degree, other times it maybe it's almost unnoticeable, but as we behold Jesus, we are being transformed into his image. Until the day, the Bible tells us that we will be fully transformed. One day your beholding will not be as through a mirror dimly, but it will be as clearly as you and I see each other. You will be face to face with Jesus. And on that day, John tells us in 1 John that we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. And so the Christian life is a life of beholding Jesus and continually being transformed until the day we behold Jesus face to face and we are made like him because we see him as he is. That's exciting for me. We will be made like Jesus and will stand in the presence of God and people will, and the angels will be there and they'll say, did you see Sue? Look at Sue. Man, she looks so much like Jesus. You ever think about that? Man, look at Graham. He looks so much like Jesus because he's been fully transformed into the image of his son. He'll still look like Graham, hopefully. But who he is and his heart and everything about him will be transformed into the image of Jesus. It's amazing. And so do we see how that change, what Paul is laying out for us? There's an agent of change, it's the Spirit. And the Spirit comes and He lifts the veil for you so that you can see the glory of Christ. Without the Spirit, you can sit down, you can read the Bible, and it can just be words on a page. People can tell you about Jesus, but you can be blind to it. You are in need of the Spirit to lift the veil so that you can see the glory of Christ. And Paul says when the veil is lifted, then you behold 
Jesus. Be preoccupied with Jesus. Don't be preoccupied with lesser things. Behold the glory of Jesus in his word, in worship, as we sing, as you go through your day-to-day life. Behold Jesus. And as you do that, you are transformed into the image of his son. And one day, that transformation will be complete when you behold Jesus face to face, not as through a mirror dimly, but as he is face to face with Jesus, and you'll be made like him. And so in light of that, I just want to leave you with two questions this morning. They're questions to reflect on. You don't need to answer them immediately, but roll them over in your head. The first question you need to ask yourself this morning is, do I want to change? Do I want to change? Do I want to become like Christ? Or would I just be happy for God to kind of iron out a few wrinkles in my life, remove a few difficulties in my life, and make life a bit more comfortable? Do you want to change? Do you want to become like Jesus this morning? And the second is, if you do want to change in your life, if you do want to become like Jesus, if you do have that desire in your heart, then what are you beholding? What are you preoccupied with? What are you spending the majority of your time focused on? What are you beholding? Paul has just laid out for us that if we want to become like Jesus, we need to behold Jesus. If we want to see that change in our life, we need to behold the glory of Jesus. So what are you beholding this morning? Are you beholding yourself? That's only going to bring defeat. Are you beholding others and admiring them and lifting them up? That's only going to bring disappointment. You need to behold Jesus. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Beth, you can come on up. So I encourage you just to let those questions sink in. This morning, you can write them down in your notebook. Do you want to change? Or would you be happy if God just ironed out a few difficulties in your life and gave you a bit of an easier road? And second, if you do want to change, then what are you beholding? What are you preoccupied with? What takes up the majority of your focus? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can come to it and we can behold the glory of Jesus in it. And we just confess this morning that we've beheld a lot of things, looking for change that haven't been the glory of Jesus. And they've brought us disappointment, and they've brought us defeat, and they've brought us misery, 
And so this morning, we want to fix our eyes on you, Jesus. We want to fix our eyes on your glory. We want to fix our eyes on your grace and on your love and on what you've done for us through your sacrifice, what you've done for us through your resurrection, what you're doing for us now, seated at the right hand of your Father, making intercession for us. We want to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, because we want to be changed. We want to be more and more made like the image of your Son, Father, and we want to reflect that glory out to this city so that they too can see and have the veil removed and turn to the Lord and be changed as well. And so we just acknowledge this morning our complete dependence in all things as a church on your spirit. And we just ask for your help, Jesus. Amen.